Well, good morning. So this morning's lesson is an exciting lesson. So we are working through prophet, priest, and king, the roles of Christ in the Bible and our roles today by Richard Belcher. So this is lesson nine, but we're taking a, a little bit of a, not, not a detour, but an expansion. So this morning we're going to focus more on uh, another man's work, uh, Benjamin Glad, his book, From Adam and Israel to the Church. And we're going to be looking at priests, but specifically this idea of priest or priesthood in the Old Testament. So if you remember the last two weeks, Des hit on uh, priest, uh, specifically Christ as priest, Christ in the office of priest. But now we're going to you know, flip it, head back, if you will, and look at the Old Testament. So what I want to do is uh, do the catechism questions together. So what I'll do is... I will ask the question, and then you guys will see the bolded A, and then uh, we'll have everyone respond together and read the answer. You don't have to, you know, cite the, the scripture verses, but it'll just be question, answer, and we'll do, we've got seven of them, and this is just to reorient us back. What, what are we thinking about this morning when we think about uh, the offices of prophet, priest, and king? So church, question 22, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Question 23, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 24. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Excellent. All right, question 65. What is WCF? The Westminster Confession. Yep, nope, sorry, yep, nope, good question. Um, uh, question 65. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer. I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Question 66. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer. I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. Question 67. Why do you need Christ as a king? Answer. Because I am weak and helpless. Excellent. Nope, perfect. Yeah, that's just a great little way just to um, uh, kind of renew us and get us thinking about this. So, um, so much to cover, so exciting, really, really, uh, really exciting. So, um, fantastic. So, if you remember last, last, uh, last week, Pastor Des was hitting on four major, four major subjects when we think of Jesus and priesthood. He had on Jesus as the end-time temple. 
the temple cleansing, right? Jesus guarding, protecting, and cleansing the temple. He hit on a better priest and better sacrifice. And then this aspect of Christ as priest, taking that to the ends of the earth. So now this morning, I want to open up with a question. And this is not rhetorical, so this is intended for, uh, for answers. Um, what pictures or actions come to mind when you hear priest, right? And again, not the Anglican or Roman Catholic priest, but think, you know, more Old Testament priest, right? What are some of those actions or pictures that kind of draw up in your mind when you think about a priest? Ephod. Yeah, the ephod. Yep. Yep. The garments. Yep. Yep. Priestly garments. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the Holy of Holies. Yes. Yes. Advocate. Yes. Yes. Someone who's interceding on our behalf. Yes. Absolutely. Great point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, so that's the first thing that comes to mind for me is all the sacrifices. Yeah. I was talking with Tim because we were uh, looking at Leviticus uh, with the, with the uh, middle school and high school. What was that last week or two weeks ago? Yes, last week. Yes, that's gone by quick. Um, uh, but yes, all the sacrifices, right? Right. We think about sacrifices. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. The temple guardians, yeah. right? Not to have Marvel, you know, comic overtones, but yes, you know, yeah. The temple protectors, yes. I'll tell you, you were just saying Yes, singing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, with the Levites. Yep. I don't know, covered in blood. They would have animals, like, killed everywhere, so they would be they would have blood everywhere. Yes, and it was, and some of the sacrifices were intentional where you had to put the blood on different parts of the body, the altar, on the garments. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is, which is yeah, just there's so much there. So I'm going to exercise self-control. Um, <laughs> uh, so, and I think, I think all of what we hit on is really helpful, right? And when, when we think of priests, we generally think of... Um, uh, 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 a post-fall institution, right? Something that came about after sin, right? And, 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 it, and it answers the question, um, how can sinful people be in the presence of a holy God, right? And, and, then, and then we think priesthood. But the question actually doesn't start after the fall. It starts earlier, and that's, that's, that's the beauty of what we're going to look at this morning. So this week, we're going to take a look at um, this idea of God's special presence, which is this, what you'll hear is called the, the temple motif or theme. And, and, that, and that really gets on God dwelling with his people, right? That access to the special presence of God, right? There's that sense in which God is omnipresent, right? So there's, there's always that aspect. But then there's the aspect of God dwelling in a special way, in a particular way. And so we're going to focus on that from a big overarching picture this morning. And then next week, we're going to take a more specific look at the offices or the office of priest in the Old Testament to really kind of orient us. So 
big picture, think big picture today. Next week will be more details as we think about Levites, priests, high priests, right? And how all those inner, um, uh, you know, connect with sacrifices and things of that nature. So, so on your notes, you'll see uh, a simple definition. So priest, and that's one um, who serves, mediates, and extends God's glorious presence to the ends of the earth. To serve, mediate, and extend God's glorious presence to the ends of the earth. So when we think about priest, think of it this way. We need sacrifices, right? Because that was the, to me, that's like the thing that constantly comes into my mind. We need the sacrifices in order for us to have that access to God, right? But pre-sin, we didn't need sacrifices in, in, in that sense with that special access to God like we see in the garden. So, and I think that's really important because it will be priestly service is going to relate to understanding, responding, and even guarding access to God's special presence. It's about access. All right, so on your notes, we're going to look at three major sections. You'll see the creation of Adam, Israel's creation and fall, and then third, Israel's restoration in the latter days. And we're going to be thinking about this from the standpoint of priests, of priesthood. All right, so the creation of Adam. Adam and Eve's being created in the divine image and how the first couple relates to God and the world around them. What does it mean that Adam and Eve are in God's likeness, right? We think about this. And what are his expectations for them? And what we're going to discover, what we're going to see is humanity is fashioned to dwell in God's presence and tasked with the responsibility to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. His intention always was that the earth would be full of his glory and images that reflect his glory. And that has everything to do with priesthood. So, so first on your notes, we're going to see, we're going to look at the cosmos as God's temple. Then we'll look at Eden, specifically Eden, where the garden was as a temple. So first, the cosmos as God's temple. So when we think about temple, right? Temple relates to, right, the special presence of God. And it was in a specific location, right? So, so first, the cosmos, right? The entire orca structure of all things as God's temple. And, and, and it's helpful for us just to kind of, you know, real quick, just kind of situate from a term standpoint. So when we talk about temple, what are some of the words that we see in Scripture, right? And again, knowing some of these is helpful as we connect them. So we think of words like sanctuary, tabernacle, holy abode, holy of holies, his dwelling, God's house, right? All those are bringing the same thing in mind, the place of God's special presence. So a careful reading of Genesis 1 and 2 reveals God creating a vast cosmic temple wherein he dwells and sovereignly rules. And those two things we're going to get we're going to get to the whole king aspect, you know, coming the next next 4 weeks. We're going to take a look at this king and kingdom aspect. But for now, 
Um, and the parallels between the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus are many. And, and several scholars are, are, are seeing this. That in fact, God when in Genesis 1 and 2 was setting up this cosmic temple. Listen, um, uh, uh, for example, listen here in the Old Testament where the, where the cosmos are compared to Israel's temple. Psalm 78, 69. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. Notice that. He built his sanctuary like what? Like creation. Or Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord God, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Well, where does that take place? That's in a temple. But where is God's throne room? That's in a category outside space here, right? That's not in the, the heavens, right, when we think of, like, you know, the universe, right? This is the place of God's presence with the angels, right? And that's where his throne is. But then his footstool is the earth, right? And then he says, you know, what, what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place for my rest? So comparing what house... Um, Yes, so, um, and, uh, so one more thing as we think about this. There are three major areas when you think about temple or tabernacle, right? Do you guys remember what those three areas are, right? When you think of the three areas of access in the temple or the tabernacle, do, we, do you guys remember? Holy, holy. holy of Holies, there we go. The inner court and the outer court. Yep, yep, the inner court and the outer court. No, yeah, exactly, yeah. You're like, boom, bingo, got it, yes, yes. No, absolutely, right? There's these three gradations of being in God's presence. And as you get closer and closer to the Ark of the Covenant, right, it becomes more and more protected and restricted. And that's on purpose. So, but in the same way, um, they are, uh, the temple and the tabernacle are really depicting... Uh, a similar thing that we find with creation, with the cosmos, right? So you have the temple, the, the outer court, right, which symbolizes the land and the sea. And then as you move into the temple, you have the holy place, the inner court, which, is, uh, which symbolizes the visible heavens, right, like sky and out, you know, outside in the, you know, the universe. And then finally you move into the most holy place, the throne room, the invisible heavens where God dwells, where his throne is. Yeah, Michael Morales has this really good quote. And again, this is all uh, from, uh, coming from Ben Glad's book. Uh, super helpful. So Mike, Michael Morales quotes, The cosmos was understand, understood as a large temple and the temple as a small cosmos. So we see this overlap of these ideas. So, so first we think of the cosmos as God's temple. But then secondly, now we're going to go to a, if you will, special place on earth. We're going to go back to the beginning, Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden. Eden is a garden temple, a sanctuary of God's special presence on a mountain. And this is important. There is a sense, like we said, in which God's glory fills all the earth right? His omnipresence 
and his, and his glory just shines forth. But then, and that's what we're looking at this morning, that, that particular sense where God dwells in a special way. So um, we're going to read, go, turn with me to Genesis 2, and we're going to look at uh, a couple of verses from Genesis 2. Genesis 2. And if I look really excited, um, I won't apologize for it, but this is just a subject that, uh, yeah, my mind was blown and still continues. Yeah, the cap has not come back on, you know. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Genesis 2. Let's look at uh, verses 8 through 10, and then 15 through 17. If I could have a volunteer willing to read verses 8 through 10, all right? And then, Barani, you want to get 15 through 17? All right, let's do it. So a couple of observations of this crucial text. One, Eden is on a mountain. Notice in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden and divided into four rivers. Generally speaking, rivers go downstream, not upstream. They start in a high place and go down to a lower place, which seems to imply that Eden is elevated. But listen also to Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14, where it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. And then it goes on explaining these different um, uh, stones. And then in verse 14, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. So we see this idea, not just in Genesis, but in Ezekiel, that it was a holy mountain in Eden, the garden of God. Secondly, mountains are associated with God's special presence. Not just in scripture, but also in the ancient Near East, right? The surrounding cultures and civilizations. You guys are maybe familiar with the the term a ziggurat, right? What was a ziggurat? It was a whole bunch of stairs that went up and on the top of it, right, was the place where God would, would, was believed to come down and be in that special location, right? And it's, it's this temple idea. And it, yeah, Z-I-G-G-U, I'm going to go with one R. I'm not sure if it's a double. Yeah, is it? Okay, all right, there we go. Got confirmation. And then one T. Um, <laughs> yeah, throwing a curveball this morning, yeah. <laughs> You're like, spell it backwards now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, and so, but we, but we see this idea, even in scripture, right? So Isaiah 2, 2 is a, uh, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 2, uh, 2 through 4, and then in Micah uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Actually, actually those two texts uh, say almost the same thing. 
Um, but it's the idea that mountains are the, are the special presence, right? We think of um, Jerusalem, right? Was on a mountain, right? Um, so, um, all right, excellent. So, so third point, right? So we're talking about mountains, God's special dwelling. But now, turn with me, just, just, you might not even need to flip your page. Genesis 3.8. Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, notice this, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? And then they go and they hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right? There was a special way, right? This was different than God dwelling and being omnipresent in all of the earth. There was a special way in which he was walking among them. Now, none of us are Hebrew scholars, right? Looking at this in Hebrew and like, oh, that's the, you know, that's the same word for, but there's some interesting connections, right? As you trace the word used here in verse eight, that word walking and the way in which it is used, it is also used in Leviticus 12, Deuteronomy 23, 14, and 2 Samuel 7, verses 6 and 7, it's used to describe uh, God's presence in the tabernacle. And so we see this connection. We see these words and these ideas coming together. And remember, Genesis 2 is not, it, it's, uh, right, we're, we're, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's not this massive exposition, right? And there's many things that we understand from later scripture that informs what's going on in early scripture, like Romans 5, right? And Romans 5 makes really clear, Adam was a covenant representative and solidarity, right? Just as Christ is. But when you, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't have that same force and ex, ex, explicit? I, I'm struggling with that word. So being as explicit. Yeah, there we go. All right. Um, all right, perfect. So. So, and then, and, and then lastly, related to this, as this idea of Eden as a temple. The Garden of Eden was the special dwelling place of God. Outside of the garden, it is a wilderness. Notice in verse 5 of, of chapter 2. No bush in the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Then he goes on to explain why. But wh- what is the implication here? Remember, remember from Genesis 1, 26 and 28, right? What, are you supposed to just, Adam and Eve, are you supposed to stay in Eden? No. What are you supposed to do? Subdue and what? And fill the earth, right? Fill the earth. So they were to take Eden, the place of God's special presence, and that was to extend to the outermost parts of the earth with divine images reflecting God, enjoying his special presence among them. All right, so that was the cosmos as God's temple, Eden as a temple, and now the creation of the divine image and Adam and Eve as priests. So, and here's a quote um, here. Fundamentally, being created in God's image means that Adam and Eve represent him on the earth in all their thoughts and actions. It is the divine imprint of God and humanity that reflects his divine attributes and functions in the threefold office of king, priest, and prophet. And 
So we will look at Adam and Eve as God's images in the function of the role of priest. So they were not only created to extend God's rule, they were fashioned to mediate God's presence and to worship and serve before him. As priests, Adam and Eve are to minister in God's garden sanctuary in Eden and expand God's glory, like we said, to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve serve and worship the Lord on the mountain of Eden and intimately commune with him. But look back with me again at Genesis 2.15. And again, we, we read over this, but there's priestly tones in verse 15 that we notice as we work our way through the rest of the first five books of Torah, the first five books of Moses. In verse 15, where, um, uh, this, this, this is a quote from Richard Barcellus, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those two verbs, work and keep, are important. They are used together in the Old Testament to explain the work of priests ministering in the tabernacle and temple, the place of God's special dwelling with man. And so I just want to take one of those texts where we see this in Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8. They, that's the, that is the Levites, shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. And that word keep, right, is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.15. And then notice, and then it says, as they minister at the tabernacle. That word minister is the same word for work or serve. In verse 8, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard, same word, over the people of Israel as they minister, same word, at the tabernacle. So we see that, right? And we see this in, in some, of these, some of these other text. And uh, there's a really good quote from Beale here, but we're just going to keep going. So, what are the implications of this? Well, there's a couple. And, 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 and like I said, we're going to get more into the role of priests when we think about the Old Testament next week, right? Some of those specifics. But I at least want to do a quick summary because I think that helps inform this overlap, right? Where you see the similar function as it goes back in Genesis 2. So what were some of those things from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to help us understand what's going on in Genesis 2? Well, one, the priests care for and maintain the sanctuary, the place of God's special dwelling. Secondly, they teach Torah, but specifically, or, 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 with, or with so, a special emphasis on what is holy, clean, and unclean. We see that in Leviticus 10.10. And then third, maintaining the purity of the temple and the purity of God's people. And then lastly, guarding the sanctuary from any threat of defilement or uncleanness. Right? What are we talking about? We are talking about God's special presence. And remember, 
a holy God can only dwell in a holy temple among a holy people. And, and, this, is, and this is not just true post-fall, right? This is true at all times. This is true pre-fall. And in light of this, this shows to an even greater degree Adam's failure to cast out the unclean serpent who invaded and defiled what? The holy of holies, the garden of Eden, the place of God's special dwelling with man. They failed to discern what is holy and unholy and failed to to guard God's special presence. In a phrase, they allowed the temple of God to become defiled. Alright, so we've seen on your notes, uh, um, under uh, the creation of Adam, looking at this idea in the garden, this temple idea. So now we're going to go to the next major Adam figure, which is corporate Israel. Again, remember, this is going to be like really big overview, right? Overarching, seeing how this all kind of fits together. And, and, if, and if part of this is like, I feel like we've covered this. Yes, we have at a couple different times through some of the different lessons, but that's intentional. This stuff is just, it just needs to just be continued to root in us. So, so secondly, Israel's creation and fall. Right, Israel's creation and fall. So Genesis fifteen, uh, can't speak. Genesis three fifteen. What's going on there? Right, super critical as we think about this overarching picture. God promises that from the seed of the woman there is one who will come who will reverse the curse, and this is going to have important implications when we think about God's special presence and priests, right? Because now sin has come into the world and sinful humanity needs a mediator. It needs a redeemer. Secondly, right, as, as, as we start, fast forward from Adam in the garden to now corporate Adam in Egypt, the nation Israel. And, and, and uh, Glad asked the question, how is Israel a corporate Adam expected to rule as kings mediate God's presence, and embody his law. What difference does the temple make? So on your notes, the creation of Israel and the divine image. And I will say, seeing parallels and how God instituted these from the beginning and then reveals and explains them throughout Scripture where these ideas and types build is really like baffling to the mind, right? And just points to God as the overall author of Scripture. It truly is amazing. So, so let's look at a couple of these God-intended parallels and this building escalation between Adam and Israel. And I think this is really helpful when we think about mediating God's special presence. So on your notes, there's a table, from, and this is from gentleman William Dumbrell, uh, between Israel's Sinai experience coming, uh, coming together there and the creation account. So look with me on, on the four to the left and the right. We have Adam and Eve and Israel. 
Adam and Eve, created outside Eden. Israel, created outside Canaan, the promised land. Adam and Eve, created to function as kings and priests. Israel, created to function as kings and priests. Adam and Eve, conditioned to stay in Eden through law. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Israel, conditioned to stay in Canaan through Torah. Adam and Eve, exiled from Eden, the special presence of God. Israel, exiled from Canaan, the special presence of God. So, as interesting as those are, I want us to now look at some of those texts behind these ideas. So, or or at least another aspect of this, in the same way, we see this parallel between Adam and Israel in that they are both called God's son. So here, Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But now listen to this parallel that Luke records in his gospel, in Luke 3.38, as he calls uh, Adam son of God. Both are addressed as sons. And this is intentional. This is developing this building escalation, right? That's, gonna, that's ultimately pointing to what? To who, right? The greater son, right? The greater son to come. Moreover, in Isaiah 43.1, God uses the same words from Genesis 1 and 2 to describe Israel's creation. Here, Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. And we see this, that Israel is a corporate Adam intended with the same role similar role and function as Adam. And so now we ask, how does this relate to God's special presence and mediating God's presence? That takes us to your notes. Sinai as a temple and Israel as priests. And several several scholars more recently are really starting to draw some of these parallels between Mount Sinai and Israel's tabernacle and temple. Like Eden and the tabernacle in Exodus 3.1, Mount Sinai, which is called Mount Horeb in that text, is called the mountain of God. And Sinai has three gradations or you know, uh, areas of holiness like the tabernacle, right? Think about this. The tabernacle had the court, the place of the people, like we said. It had the the holy place or the inner court where the priests ministered. And then it had the holy of holies, right? Which is the most holy place restricted for the priests once a year. So the same with Mount Sinai. The base of the mountain is holy, right? Remember in Exodus... um, uh, Exodus chapter chapter 3, where God tells Moses, take the sandals off your feet, for the ground you stand on is 
holy, right? And that was at the base of the mountain, right? And that was, and then we read later, that's where all the, all the people, right, were at the base of the mountain. But then a select number, they get to go up to the next level of the mountain, right? And, and it's more restricted. And this is restricted to Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And we see that in Exodus 24.1. Now they are all coming up, this, this more restricted group, to this next area, right? As they are approaching, right? More and more so, the place of God's special presence. But then lastly, and this is equivalent to the most holy place, is Moses who goes to the top of the mountain and sees God, right? For, or, or at least ba- God's backside, right? And is in that, and uh, where he is just shining when he comes down the mountain, being in God's glorious presence, right? And like we said, what does temple have to do with presence? Everything, right? We're talking about access to God in his special presence. So, so many more things to say there, but for time's sake, let, uh, turn with me to Exodus, the, the uh, next book in your Bible from Genesis. Let's go to Exodus 19. Let's just look at this for, for a minute. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, right? if you will do these things, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So we're talking about corporate Israel here. Right? And we notice this conditional aspect. If you, right, and then you shall be. Right? Israel is redeemed as a nation and is set up to function and fulfill the role of priests, God's special presence. As priests mediate God's presence to the Israelites, so too the nation Israel is to mediate God's special presence to who? To the nations, right? They were to be a light to the nations. Corporate Israel was to demonstrate how sinful people can enter the presence of a holy God and mediate his presence to Nations that do not know God. So in addition to mediating God's glory, another dimension of Israel's priestly service is their commitment to preserving the sanctity of the temple and the promised land. And this is fascinating. It may not be a stretch to conceive of the promised land as a gigantic temple, at least in some sense, wherein God dwells with Israel. And in fact, in Exodus 15, 15 through 17, we see this connection, right? If you just go a couple couple pages back, Exodus 15 verses, actually we're going to look at uh, specifically verses 16 and 17 for time's sake. Uh, verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them. And this is, this is after they've passed through the Red Sea. Now they're singing the song of Moses. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now, notice in verse 17, right? 
They're purchased, redeemed, they're coming through. And what happens? Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on what? Your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for what? For your abode. And then another key word, what's that? The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Right? So we see these themes. We see how the scripture's putting these parallels and all these things together when we talk about God's special presence. So the promised land, it is a type of Eden, of original pre-sin creation, a sanctuary of God's dwelling the place of God's choosing with his people at Sinai God creates a corporate Adam and charges them to be holy and set apart from the nations so that he can dwell in their midst right in Exodus 19 through 31 Israel is to be not only clean but also holy the highest and most acceptable position before God. Remember we talked about that? Unclean, clean, and holy. Leviticus 10.10. Within the nation of Israel, God ordained a distinct office of priest, right? Exodus 28 and 29. And the priests represent the people to God as they minister in the tabernacle. And as Israel settles in the promised land, the nation must immediately expel all forms of spiritual uncleanness. And why is that? Because the land is the place of what? His special presence. So, we'll look here really quickly at the tabernacle and temple models of the cosmos and then the splintering of the offices on your notes. So if we remember, what's the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? They both had the same idea from the standpoint, it was three, um, not locations, I can't, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, uh, areas. areas, there we go, yes, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking locations, it's like, all right, well now you got like Bethel, and you know, yeah. So, but, but we think three locations, right, within both the tabernacle and the temple, the, the outer court, right? Then you have the inner court or the holy place where the priests minister, and then you have the most holy place, the holy of holies. And it's in both the tabernacle and temple, but... What is the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? The temple is stationary, the tabernacle is moving. Yes, that's right. So the tabernacle was God's dwelling through the wilderness wanderings as God brought them in to the promised land. And even in the promised land, for, for a time, they had the tabernacle until Solomon built the temple. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and... We will go more into the splintering of offices uh, with priests. Uh, we saw that with Deuteronomy 17 and 18, right? Where we saw um, that, yes, there's a sense in which, like we, like we read in Exodus 19, right? All of Israel was to be um, uh, uh, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, right? We see these things. But then in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, but then there was going to be a king in Israel. And there would be a prophet raised up like Moses, And then we see even of the distinct order of the priests. So, all right. 
let's go, that was uh, point two, so Israel's creation and fall. So now point three, and this is, this is exciting, right? Because now this is pointing forward. Right? I mean, in, in, in one sense, it's all pointing forward, right? It's all, it's all looking for the, the better, right? But, but, but this is exciting when we think about Israel's restoration in the latter days, right? When we think about prophecy, right? At least my, my mind does, right? I'm like, boom, let's go to the major prophets. Let's just go park in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? And you're just like, this is just amazing, right? Seeing these details and what, what comes together and, and, and whatnot. So, um, so let's, um, let, let's, let's take a look at that and then we can um, have a minute for questions or comments. So point three, Israel's restoration in the latter days. So because of sin, we see a perversion of the threefold office, right? And, and we see Adam and Eve's descendants, instead of being priests who enjoy God's special presence and protect it and guard it, what do we see? We see anti-priests who defile God's presence and worship everything but their covenant Lord. But we also see the promise of one to come, Genesis 3.15, who will reverse the curse, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And over and over again in the Old Testament, they make these connections of Israel, who becomes restored and redeemed, right? Sometimes we'll hear about the remnant in Israel, right? The true Israel who really worships God and is not apostate in heart. But it happens. The Old Testament makes these connections with the work of one individual, right? An Adam-like figure who leads the people through a second exodus, a greater deliverance and exodus from sin. So on your notes, the arrival of the faithful priest and restored Israel as ministering priests. So we are going to go to what has been called the Gospel of Isaiah, right? You think of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we read Isaiah chapter, now we're not going to read Isaiah 40 through 66 this morning, but when you read Isaiah 40 through 66, you walk away thinking, I feel like I'm almost reading the New Testament, right? With, 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 with some of the granularity of detail that, that it comes forward. And so it's been called the, uh, the Gospel of Isaiah. So what do we see? We see Israel's depiction, or sorry, Isaiah's depiction of Israel as the end-time priest to the nation. In Isaiah 40 through 53, we see the term servant found 19 times. And on one hand, when Isaiah uses the term servant, he refers to the nation of Israel. But the nation is unfaithful. The nation is not carrying out the commission God has given the nation. It is not fulfilling the covenant God made with them. On the other hand, an individual servant successfully and faithfully obeys God and bears the guilt of Israel. Right? We think of the four servant songs, right? Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 53, right? Those four servant songs that are just beautiful. And the New Testament will just pick up on those so many times. But then, and this is, this is really interesting, Isaiah 53 to 66 switches to plural servants. And now the focus is not so much on the one but it's focused on restored Israel, the group, the people. Well, why is that? Over and over in the Old Testament, we see the idea of solidarity, the one for the many, right? We see that, I mean, we could even go back to Genesis 3 and park it there, right? And work on this idea of solidarity, right? 
but this idea of the one who acts on behalf of the many. So, and I, I'm just going to read one text from Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 6. Uh, and, and Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. Actually, let me, I want to preface it real quick. As true Israel, the individual servant stimulates the formation of a faithful remnant, the true corporate Israel of God. This servant is also critical in mediating God's presence to the nations. So now, now, now I'll read Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Notice this, right? This servant is different than the nation, right? It, it is that individual. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Remember that idea of restoring. But notice this. I will make you as a light for who? For the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right? You could ask that question. What does the temple have to do with missions? And what's the answer? Everything. Right? What is it that the people that don't know God don't have? They do not have and enjoy that special presence of God, which we have now through Jesus Christ. So, so uh, but we see that idea of, of that faithful servant who then brings and is mediating God's presence, not just to restore Israel, but, but all the nations. But this happens within this broader framework of a single individual restoring a community. So remember how I said Isaiah um, 55 to 66 talks about the plural servants? Well, listen to Isaiah 61.6, just to bring out this idea. Isaiah 61.6. But you shall be called, talking to Israel, the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. The individual servant priest, what does he do? He creates a community of priests, people restored. And this is just, this is just fascinating. Israel's calling as priests to the nations in Exodus 19.6, right? That conditional, if you... And then you shall be a kingdom of priests, right? That conditional element. Look here in Isaiah 61, 6. And you shall be called the priests of the Lord, right? It is finally realized in this end time community that comes as a result of this faithful servant. What Israel failed to do under the old covenant is now being fulfilled in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. All right. That was a lot of material, and I really appreciate you guys going through that. So uh, let's just open it up um, for questions or, uh, or comments. Um, yeah, we'll just kind of open the floor. Can I just try to like recap 
special presence to the ends of the earth. Yes. Yes. They failed. Yes. Partly because they didn't expel the sin. Yes. Right? Yep. Okay. So, in response to that, now God's special people is Israel. Point two? Yes, that corporate Adam. Yep. Kind of like the next major figure. Even though there's, you know, some... Okay. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. And then that failed. Yes. Right? So then point three. Yes. For now, it's not just a people group You're on the right track. Okay, okay. Even though even though Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests. Yes. Right. Right. Of God's presence. And then now you look at this end time community, right? Where we're seeing the prophets are seeing these 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 visions and these images, right? And it's but they're looking at it in Old Testament categories, right? Through the work of, of, of this one. Is that a hand up, John, or is that just a scratch of the nose? Scratch of the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So yes, you got it, and I think that was probably an excellent summary. I'm not sure really understood the point, but okay, we'll get there, right? We're gonna unpack it more in a week or two. Or is that it? Okay. All right. This was it for the big picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the curtain's gonna close in here. Uh, in <laughs> There's no Saturday show. Yeah. <laughs> Friday night was it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Arnie. Yes. In the garden, or was it talking about their sinning or allowing the serpent? Yes. Both? Yes. So, um, uh, it, it's it's a little bit of both because because um, the, the serpent comes in right, which which in like in Israel's mind mind reading, it's like, whoa, that's an unclean animal. What is it doing in the holy of holies? And then as they have that interaction, they're not challenging the serpent and then shutting it down and then expelling it from the garden. But they're then, then they give in to sin, and then boom, it's like the temple of God's been defiled in, in, in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. No, good question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing when you think about. Missions has always been about taking God's special presence that is to be enjoyed and loved and worshipped to peoples that don't know him, right, in that, in that special saving way. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, that started in Genesis 1, right? It's always meant to, to go out. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm in the same boat. My, like I said, my mind capsule has not come down yeah. from, from this, yeah. Yes.
Yes. Yes. Yes. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and you can see that in Genesis 3, where God is the one who goes after Adam and Eve, right? It wasn't like they like wandered back and were like, Lord, we blew it, right? It was like the Lord comes to them and then, and then announces what he's going to do, right? You're just like, man, the Lord's just amazing, yeah. All right, well, let's, uh, let's, let's close in prayer. Thank the Lord for our time. Father, we, we thank you for um, getting into your word and just knowing that your special presence is to be enjoyed and the access that we have to you, even as a sinful people, but a sinful people in Christ, in union to Christ, that we know you and have that access to your throne room, the Holy of Holies. We thank you for that, the privileges of the children of God. We pray that you would bless our worship this morning as a corporate people for your name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.